A few years ago, I preached a sermon from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, titled Christ in the Storm, about the Lord Jesus, how he calmed the seas from within the boat. But today, my text is Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36, and my title is Christ over the Storm, which I think will become very apparent when we get to the text. When we read the historical accounts, the Gospels, we, be, we hold the, the amazing life of Jesus Christ, and we're always left with the task, after we read the Gospel accounts, of making application. Once we determine what the text says, what it actually is written on the page, we have to do the work of understanding what it means, and then furthermore, how do we apply what we're learning and reading to our own lives and be changed by it? Now, in saying that, it would be tempting for us to read a, an account like what we're going to read today and think that the Bible is all about us, that this exists so- solely for the purpose of giving us something to do. Far from it. Because the Bible is the self-revelation of God to us, and it has been written so that we will respond to Him in faith and worship Him. It is not all about us. It is all about Him. We must make it about Him. And this becomes all the more relevant as we consider our text today. And so often, when you preach a text like this, it is easy for the preacher to make this all about the faith trial of Peter. It's all about Peter walking on the water and sinking and rising and all that. But as we look into this text, we see that this narrative is not about Peter. It's actually about something very different. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, if you haven't already. Matthew 14, working our way through the Gospel of John. The final verses of Matthew 14, they bring us to the end of a very long day. The beginning of the chapter, Jesus gets wind that Herod is taking an interest in him. And this occasions Matthew, as the storyteller, to recount the events of how Herod had killed John the Baptist because he feared that something was happening. And now he is more afraid that Jesus is the reincarnated spirit of John the Baptist. And so that's Herod's issue. He's concerned about this. But Jesus has no intention of wasting time with Herod. And so he takes an opportunity to get away to pray. Of course, a large crowd seizes on this and chases after him and follows him and is pleading for him to minister to them, which he does. At the end of that very long day, this crowd of more than 5,000 people, we think upwards of maybe twenty or 25,000 people, they begin to get very hungry. And the disciples, they want to send the crowd away, but the Lord insists that they are to feed this crowd instead, and He will do so miraculously through the meager means of five loaves and two fish. And so He does so. He feeds this crowd of thousands of people, and now the crowd is satisfied. And at this point, Jesus looks to make his exit. So pick it up in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22, on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. Now, the sequence of events, we're going to continue on in our text shortly here, but the sequence of events here is key. The question is, how do you leave a crowd of thousands of people who've just witnessed a miracle, 
Ever think about the logistics? Last time we were together, we thought about the logistics of actually how to feed 20,000 people. Remember that? It's quite an ordeal, but Jesus did it miraculously. Now that you've fed these people all of this food, how then do you take this crowd of 20,000 people and send them away? So Jesus here uh, is going to do that. But the question even persists beyond that. Why does he need to leave so abruptly? Why can't he just kind of take up his, uh, his time and take up residence there and live there for a while and talk to them and teach them? And can't he do that? Well, John 6.15 actually tells us that after he feeds all these people, after they witness this miracle, the people declare that Jesus is the prophet who has come into the world. So they've identified him now. They know who he is. And a small group of them actually attempt to seize Jesus by force and make him their king. So he's already proven he can take care of a lot of people. So they're thinking, he would be a great king. We'd never run out of food. It'd be wonderful, right? That's their thinking. We can make him the king because Herod's not really our king. He's not even, he's not even fully Jewish. He's just a, a Herodian. He's, he's something else. Jesus would be a great king to minister to our earthly needs. And so they try to seize him and force him to become king. But Jesus did not come to this earth to establish a political dominance, at least not yet. At this point here, his mission is to save people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. He says it over and over again. So he's on a mission, and becoming a politician is not part of that mission. He has something else in mind, and so he has to move quickly if he's going to get away from this crowd before they turn into a mob scene and try to do something else. And so I want to mark this here. Think about this with me. If he leaves first, say he gets into a boat and he crosses over the sea and leaves all the disciples to try to dissipate the crowd, it's going to become pretty messy. It's going to have a hard time because not only that, if Jesus goes away and the crowd turns on the disciples, there could be an an even bigger problem. And furthermore, say say 11 out of the 12 get away, but one is stranded behind, the whole thing becomes very messy. You see what I'm saying here? Crowd control is is a, a complicated business. And if it gets really bad, Jesus has to turn around and go rescue them anyway. So he wants to avoid all that. So in verse 22, it says that he immediately, his first thing he does, he immediately makes all the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side. He sends the disciples away first. So that, he's, that's the small crowd. He's moving off and saying, okay, you guys go. I'll stay behind just me. Now, they wouldn't want to leave him. You've got to think about this. They're there. They're watching over him. They're sort of his crowd control. They're his entourage, if you will. They don't want to leave him behind, but he's the Lord. And he just told them, you are to go. So the Bible says he makes them go. And they go. He's commanded them, and they do so. So they get in the boat. They start across the Sea of Galilee. They're headed toward Capernaum. And then we read in verse 23, After he sent the crowds away himself... He went up to the mountains to pray by himself, and it was evening, he was there alone. So somehow he gets the disciples to go, and then he himself, by himself, sneaks away out of the crowd, and he goes off to pray. So finally, Jesus is able to get some time alone. He's been trying to get time alone even before he fed the 5,000, but now he really is going to get some time to be alone with the Father, to pray, to contemplate, to think about what's going on, to just rest by himself. We, we get this model from Jesus. He's always trying to get away and just have some quiet time, some time of peace and reflection and prayer and refreshment. That's important to Jesus. It should be important to us as well. However, he's up on the mountain, and as he's there, a storm begins to 
arise and wreak havoc on the sea that's below. Now the trip across the the water should have only taken maybe an hour at the most two if they're going across the deepest part of the sea. But Matthew records here that the wind is contrary. So there's a little bit of a storm that is sweeping up here and the wind begins to work against them. Now it's not uncommon for heavy winds to blow across the Sea of Galilee. Even on a a relatively nice day, the winds on the Sea of Galilee, even today, can be pretty fierce. It can rock a boat very much so. But here, the night is exceptionally windy. And now whether they were blown off course, we don't know. But Matthew records that they were a long distance from the land. And John, in his account, actually adds that they were 25 to 30 stadia away. A stadia, that we think that 25 to 30 is about 3 to 4 miles so at the, at the widest part, the Sea of Galilee is about six or seven miles, if my memory serves correctly, but they're halfway across several miles over the, the waters. This puts them smack dab in the middle. The wind is howling, it's nighttime, it's dark, and we read here that the, the boat is being battered by the waves. Mark, in his account, adds that the disciples, in this battering of waves and wind in their face, are straining at the oars. They're trying to row across the sea and they're straining and struggling. One wrong move or one rogue wave and the boat could capsize and all of them could drown. That's where they are. That's where they're stuck. And then Jesus arrives, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, Matthew notes an interesting time stamp here. He says that Jesus came to the disciples in the fourth watch of the night. Now, just note this in your Bible, if you would. The ancient Roman system divided the nighttime into four three-hour watches. So the first watch was between 6 and 9 p.m. The second watch was 9 to 12, then 12 to 3. So the fourth watch is 3 to 6 in the morning. And so the fourth watch of the night is in that time. Now, we don't know if it's three, four, five. We don't know exactly what time. It just says it's in the fourth watch. But think about this with me. Do the math with me. Jesus feeds the 5,000 toward the end of the day prior, somewhere after 3 o'clock. That's what we think. 3 to 6 is when he feeds them. So he feeds them right around late afternoon. For the sake of argument, let's just say that they don't even get onto the boat till 9 p.m. That's plenty of time to distribute all the food, sit down and eat, and then gather up all the leftovers afterwards. So let's put them on the boat at 9. If they're still stuck three miles out in the water by the time of the fourth watch, this would mean that the disciples have been fighting with the wind and the waves, struggling at the oars for more than six hours. Fancy that in your mind. Six hours in a storm, rocking your boat, pushing on the oars, getting absolutely nowhere, and the threat of capsizing and drowning. They're exhausted. They're fatigued. They're delirious even. They don't want to give up. Everything in their body wants to give up. We, I'm just done. I'm done rowing. They don't, want to, they don't want to keep on rowing, but if they give up, they're going to possibly blow somewhere they don't want to blow or they'll drown or something bad will happen to them. And so that's where we are with them. And it's at that point we read this. He, Jesus, he came to them walking on the sea. You've got to love Matthew's understatements. If I was writing this, you know, I, I love to write, so I paint this beautiful picture about, you know, his feet, you know, touching the tops of the waters, and I paint the whole... Matthew doesn't do that. The scripture always seems to understate the miraculous. 
Because it's as common in terms of the gospel writers, Jesus' deity is commonly displayed because that's all he is. He did all these things amazingly and miraculously, and Matthew just simply writes, he was walking across the top of the sea. Just like that. Whereas before, Jesus had performed the, the sign in the great ocean, the miracle from within the boat. Remember that? He's in the boat, and he, and he hushes uh, the sea. He, he hushes the wind and the waves. But now he's actually walking across the tops of the water. And this is scientifically impossible. But not for the one who created the sea. He walks from the land right out toward the boat, across the water, as if nothing has changed. No problem at all. And how do the disciples respond as they see Jesus walking across the top of the water? Verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea... They were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Again, they had been struggling all night long. They're not thinking clearly. They're delirious. They're exhausted. Their minds can't comprehend that anybody would be out on the water at all with them. And so they conclude this must be a phantasma in the Greek. It's an apparition or a ghost. It's got to be a ghost that is stalking us and harassing us. What else could it be? But they're terrified. They're terrified first because of the storm. That's enough to make anybody crazy. But now they're even more terrified at the sight of what they believe to be a ghost. And the Bible says they cried out in fear. They freaked out. They lost their mind. Verse 27. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus calls out to them in the midst of the storm, and they are words of comfort. I've got to love this. Words of comfort. He says, Take courage. Some translations have rendered this, Be of good cheer. Take courage, Matthew 9, when Jesus is about to heal both the paralytic in verse 2 and the woman with the hemorrhage in verse 22. In both cases, he instructs them before he does the miracle to take courage, be of good cheer. We might even say in our vernacular, cheer up, cheer up. He tells them why they're to be encouraged. Why are they to be encouraged and to cheer up? He says, well, it is I, it is I. Now, in the Greek, the words are ego eimi, now, Jesus uh, could be using a, a self-identifier. This has led some scholars to believe that he's taken the opportunity to declare himself to be the great I am. When he would say, I am, it would be ego emi. Now, that's certainly true. He could be making a declarative statement about him being uh, God himself, Yahweh. Because, again, that's what the Greek really means. But, of course, he could also simply be t- telling them that, brothers, it's, it's me, Jesus. But we shouldn't miss the opportunity to see that this miracle is no doubt testifying to the deity of Christ. Of course, it's hard not to see the connection that Job makes in Job 9.8, where he says of God, He who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. That's who our God is. Or Psalm 77, where the writer speaks of God, Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. Or even the psalm we read this morning, same imagery. Now, the Old Testament saints may have been thinking at this time about Yahweh, God, 
uh, parting the Red Sea, they can walk through the sea on dry land. Maybe that was the miracle they're thinking about. But yet here, the Lord Jesus displays an even greater glory by walking across the top of the sea. His feet subjecting the waves to His powerful sovereignty. Yet Jesus has the right to declare in the midst of all of this, Ego, Ami, I am. It is I. The I am is the one who is walking across the top of the sea. But then he encourages them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's the understatement of the year, isn't it? Don't be afraid. What do you mean don't be afraid? Do you see where we are right now? But that's a reoccurring theme in Scripture, and no less in Matthew. Matthew 1.20, when Joseph encounters the angel telling him that he's about to have this son born to his wife, he tells him before he gives him this information, do not be afraid. When commissioning the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, three different times Jesus tells them, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Don't be afraid. Or verse 26, do not fear for there's nothing that's covered that won't be revealed. Verse 31, do not fear, you are much more valuable than the sparrows. Over and over again, do not be afraid, do not fear. Or later, even at the transfiguration, which we're going to look at shortly, within the next couple of weeks to a few months, or whenever we get to it, Matthew 17, the disciples are terrified at the sight of the glory of God, and yet he tells them, don't be afraid. Matthew 28, after the resurrection, the disciples see the risen Lord, and what does he say to them? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What is the reoccurring sentiment here? In Matthew's Gospel, we see it's this. Beloved, when Christ is with you, do not be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Because so often we are afraid, aren't we? We're afraid of all kinds of things. And I'll tell you, the the more you live, the longer you live, the more things that you find to be afraid of. We're always afraid of something. But if Christ is with you, don't be afraid. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with that. Christ is with you, don't fear. No matter what the obstacle is. In fact, be encouraged. Cheer up. Christ is with you, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear. But what has He given you? A spirit of love and power and discipline through a sound mind. And so in the midst of this raging storm, Jesus is telling the disciples, take courage. Cheer up. It's me, I'm here, it is I, the I am. Don't be afraid. And then something takes place. Peter goes from fear to faith. Look at verses 28 and 29. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus This is the only place in the Gospels where this event is recorded. This is the only place we see this happening. And to Peter's credit, he sees the Lord walking across the tops of the water, and he has enough faith to believe that he too could walk across the water. After all, if the prophet Elisha can make an axe head float, certainly the great prophet Jesus can make a man float as well. And so that's what Peter is desiring. But notice what he does. He doesn't jump right out of the boat. Impetuous Peter, that's usually what he does. He does it at the end of John's Gospel. He sees the Lord, he jumps out of the boat. But instead here, he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now I suspect 
that he knows that Jesus is Jesus here. He doesn't say, if it is you, because he's curious. He's basically saying, because it is you. Lord, if that's really you, and I know that it is, then command me to come out of the boat and I'll do it. He doesn't want to do anything unless the Lord commands it. That's wise. Faith is the right impulse here. Verse 29, he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is remarkable. And I'll tell you, friends, one thing that we know for sure is that Peter's wife was not in the boat. Because if she was, he was not going to get out. I guarantee that. (laughs) Sweetheart, you are not getting out of this boat. Okay? (laughs) But she's not there. So Peter... Now, I, I can't for the life of me understand why Peter would do this. Now, maybe I'm just too cautious, but I'm in the boat. I see Jesus. I'm just going to hang on and wait. I'm not getting out of, the, out of the boat. But Peter does. He wants to get out and he wants to walk across the water tops, perhaps even foolishly. Why foolishly? Look at verse 30. He's out on the water, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Very quickly, his pride becomes bigger than his faith. Because after all, the Lord is really the one who tramples the waters underfoot, not us. Remember, we're not the hero of the story. So when he sees Jesus walking across the top of the water, shouldn't that be enough to say, that's the Lord, I'm in the boat. But he gets pretty brave here, he gets pretty bold, and in case you think I'm being too hard on Peter, look at Peter's track record. It was, he was in the discussion with the disciples when they were talking about which one of them was the greatest. Remember that? And Jesus has to rebuke the disciples and essentially say, what are you talking about? The greatest of these will be the least of these. Arguing about who's the greatest. Remember, he boasted he would never, never betray the Lord. Overconfident. Or even he fancied himself to be the Lord's defender when he attacked the Roman soldier later in the garden and cut off his ear. And so Peter is prone to boisterous actions and grandiose and haughty thoughts. Poor Peter tends to think of himself a little better than he is, and so do we all. Don't we think that way? Isn't that why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 to consider other people as being more important than yourself? Don't just always look out for yourself and think that you're something. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? It's very easy for us to think that now that we see Jesus, that we're going to go do what He's doing. Miraculously. Guard your hearts, beloved. Know your place. Jesus is the Lord God. We are His servants. We are created. But we have to be careful of this, and so does Peter. And here, as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, what happens to him? He begins to sink. That's another lesson for us, isn't it? Don't take your eyes off Christ. But what does he say in the midst of sinking in the waters? Lord, save me. Isn't that the sinner's cry? Isn't that our cry? Lord, save me. This isn't, Lord, watch what I can do. This is, Lord, save me. But note how Jesus responds. Here's the real hero of the story. Look at verse 31 immediately, I love the use of that word here, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. He grabs him. And by implication, he pulls him up and he says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? But immediately here, this is the hero. 
Jesus rescues Peter. Notice that Peter doesn't grab on to Jesus. Jesus takes hold of Peter. That's also true of salvation. It's God who reaches down and saves us. He redeems us. He pulls us up. He rescues us. He saves us. And after pulling him up, Jesus offers what I believe is a gentle rebuke. Now, he could blast him. He really could. What do you think you're doing? I'm the Lord. I'm the one who walks on water. What are you doing? He could have done that. But notice he doesn't do that. Peter steps out and Jesus says, come. Come and walk to me. He falls and he says, why did you doubt? Why why do you have so little faith? But again, I think this is a gentle rebuke. I really do. Because Jesus always refers to his people this way. Matthew 6.30, referring to those who doubt God's provision. Oh, why do you have little faith? Again, he's not blasting us. He could, he has the right to. But it's a gentle rebuke to his own people. Don't have so little faith. That's That's the essence of it. Oh, you have little faith. Don't doubt God's provision. Or Matthew 8, 26, when the disciples fear they're going to drown in the storm. Oh, you have little faith. Or Matthew 16, 8, when the disciples are worried that they're going to starve. Oh, Lord, we're going to starve. Oh, you have little faith. Over and over again, the disciples are responding in the flesh and Jesus rebukes them. You, oh, you have little faith. The implication is, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Have you not seen all that I've been doing and still you have no faith? The rebuke is, again, not meant to destroy the struggling believer, but to spur them on to greater faith. Jesus wants us to grow in our faith. And the implication here is, Peter, did you really think I was going to let you drown? Did you really think that I was going to sit, stand there and watch you sink and drown and lose your life? Oh, Peter, you know me better than this. Don't you know who I am? Oh, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. And then Jesus manifests even greater power. Even greater power. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. This is remarkable. Notice that this whole encounter is marked by the power of Jesus all the way throughout the entire thing. First, his power and authority to compel the disciples to, grow, to go and the crowd of thousands to disperse. That's the power of his spoken word, his authority to people. And then his power over the laws of physics to, to even walk across the tops of the water and even to make Peter rise and walk across the top of the water. And now we see his power over nature itself to still the storm in an instant. Power after power after power is displayed by the great I am in order to validate his identity. Who is he? He's the one who stills the storm and walks across the tops of the seas and commands people to go and to come, doesn't he? This is our great Jesus. When the disciples were stuck in the boat, remember during the storm, and Jesus calmed the storm with a word. He stood up from the boat after, after taking a nap. He was awoken from his nap. He walked to the front. He says, hush, be still, and everything stops dead. Well, how do they respond? Do you remember back to what they did? What they said? In shock, they responded with this. 
What kind of a man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's how they respond when they see the power of Jesus. Essentially, they're saying, who is this? Who, who do we have in the boat with us? Who's able to speak and the whole creation responds? Who does this? That's their question. Who is this? But in verse 33, that question is answered. Look at verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him and said, You are certainly God's son. They know the answer now. This is God's son. If Jesus were just a man, or just a rabbi, or just a prophet, or even just an angel, then the disciples would be sinning right now. Because they are not to worship anybody except God alone, right? Scriptures are very clear on this. And yet, they worship Jesus. That tells you what they're thinking. They know he's not just a prophet. Because they were trained as Jews, you don't worship anybody. God says, I will not share my glory with anybody. But they bow down and they worship Jesus and they declare, you are certainly God's son. Here, they are affirming what God has already spoken audibly at the baptism of Jesus when he declares from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a Hebraism you could use here. Son of could simply mean a biological descendant of someone. The name Abramson, which is a very popular Jewish name even today, just means son of Abraham or Abram. It's a biological descendant. or At the very least, it, it likens a person to someone else. Oh, he's the chip off the old block, a son of his old dad. That's certainly true of the Hebraism. But here, son of God means something more than that. The Bible refers to Jesus as the Son of God. More than this, the only Son of God. And even further, the only begotten Son of God. What does this mean? Well, He's God's Son in several ways. Prophetically, in Psalm 2-7, the Lord God, the Father, says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And every Jew in Israel regarded Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm, which ultimately pointed to the greater Son of David, the everlasting King. So it transcends just, oh, he's like someone else. There's someone very special here being referred to in Psalm 2, the begotten son. But more than even being the son of David, John 1.18 calls Jesus the only begotten God. This is now even more distinct than that. The sights are being honed in and very specific to one person, the only singular begotten God. And to understand that Jesus is begotten, he's not begotten in time. He doesn't have a birthday. In the incarnation, yes, he became incarnate at a certain point in time. But in terms of his status before the foundations of the earth, he is begotten by the Father, but he has no beginning. This leads theologians and scholars to refer to this and see this as the fact that he is eternally begotten. They call this eternal generation. But for our purposes to know that this is the everlasting Son of God, He's always been the Son of God. Begotten from the Father from before time began. In other words, He's always been the Son and He's always been God. Because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Ergo, He is 
God Himself in human flesh. And so this isn't just some prophet doing a miracle. It's not just that he's like God in some way. John 1 and beyond affirm that he, as the Son of God, is none other than God himself, the second person of the Trinity. Now, the disciples don't understand all of this. They don't understand eternal generation. They don't understand what the full magnitude of begotten means. They don't understand theologically what John even understands 30 years later. They don't understand all of that, but they do know enough in that moment to affirm that Jesus is God and therefore we must worship Him. And so they do. They worship Him right in the boat right there. And this is the first time in Scripture that they address Him as the Son of God. Now, we would tend to think that that was it. That's a great ending to a story, isn't it? He calms the seas, gets into the boat, they worship Him and proclaim Him to be the Son of God, and and that's it. They go home and they're happy. However, in Mark 6.52, which is a parallel account of the story, it actually ends on a somber note. Despite acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, He tells us that even despite the incident with the loaves and everything else, Mark says... They had not gained any insight, but their heart was hardened. So yes, they worship Him rightly, and they should, and they do. But all of that, and they still struggled to believe. They struggled. Their hearts were still hardened within them. And and we're going to see as Matthew progresses, they're still struggling in their faith. Even to the very last hours of Jesus' earthly life, on earth before he goes to the cross, they're still struggling in their faith. But of course, our Lord is patient. He's kind. And they would see more. He would show them more, which would validate, which even brings us into the very next thing that happens. Verses 34 to 36. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, talking about Jesus, They sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. So they arrive at Gennesaret, which is near Capernaum, and the crowds are beginning to figure out where he is and they follow him and they start to to flock from all the surrounding towns and cities. Jesus' popularity has been spreading and now they're starting to recognize where he is and they're going to go after him. And when they do, they begin to bring him all those who are sick. Because they keep on hearing, there's there's a man who can heal people. He can heal your daughter and your son. He can heal your wife and your mother-in-law. He can heal you. So go see him and he'll heal you. And so they bring him all who are sick. And verse 36 is really interesting here. The disciples saw Jesus walk on water. And yet, they struggle in their faith. But here, based on reputation alone, the crowds, they threw themselves at him, even trying to simply just touch the the fringe of his cloak. Now, it wasn't the cloak that had any power. This isn't mysticism, where you touch a garment and you're healed. That's very popular today in many circles. But that's not what this is. The real thing is this, that he had the power. 
they got as close as they possibly could. So even if they couldn't grab a hold of him, if they just touched his cloak, they're not there for the cloak, they're there for him. And as many as did that, it says, as many as touched it were healed or cured. Beloved, it doesn't take much faith to be saved, but it does take true faith. You must believe that Jesus is God and powerful to save. I'll tell you, it's, I always get the question, well, what is the very bare minimum it must take to be a Christian? And you could, you could dilute it all the way down. Okay, this doctrine is secondary, this doctrine is tertiary, and well, there's some deb- a debate about this doctrine, and well, this is kind of on the fringe, and you could, you could break it all down when you get to the real heart of it. And I don't mean to be minimalistic, but you must believe that Jesus is God and He alone can save you from your sins. And He does so by His death, burial, and resurrection. And when you come to Him, you must not come to Him with pride, but humility. In fact, your your cry must be, Save me, Lord. So that's what He's looking for in faith. And lots of people, and they'll, they'll come to church, and they'll listen to sermons online, and they'll go to conferences, and... It's real easy to get wrapped up in all of that and then you go home and you start to feel a little bit discouraged. Because you're thinking, I I don't have all this. I haven't read through all the Bible all the way through or I've read read parts of it or I don't really know all this theology or all this doctrine. I don't know what you're talking about. And that can be discouraging for some. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Because our sins, our sins drown us to the very bottom of the sea. They plague us and they weigh us down like an anchor. And as soon as Adam sinned, there was a a weight wrapped around his ankle and he went down and all of us went down with him. Our sin drowns us and kills us. And the only hope that we have is for God to reach into the waters of darkness and pull us out. And He must revive us and breathe life into us and heal us and save us. That's the only way anybody gets out alive is by the grace of Christ. And so if you hear God speaking to your heart even right now, if there's anything in you, every, any impulse in you that is crying out to God, Lord, save me, then respond in faith. Turn from your sins. Repent of your sins. Perish the thought of any sin. I hate my sins, Lord. My sins are the thing that drown me. Save me. And if you trust in Jesus and the work He's done for you on the cross, that He bore the wrath of God and the penalty of your sins on His own body and died your death and rose for you and gives you life by His Spirit, if you believe on Christ, beloved, you will be saved. That is the only message that truly matters. Our salvation in our great God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, You are marvelous. You are the one who walks across the tops of the seas. And You part the seas. And You dry up the oceans. And You make the deserts to bloom. God, You are the one. In the palm of Your hand rests all the creation. You are sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient. You know all things. And You know even to the the depths and recesses of our own hearts. 
And God, You know our waywardness and our sins. You know our trespasses and our struggles and the things that plague us the most. You know, Lord, our heartaches and our sorrows. You know our fatigue and our exhaustion. Lord, You know us better than anyone because You created us and You made us in Your image and likeness. And yet we were the ones who turned away from You. The Bible says all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone to our own way. But yet You laid on Your only begotten Son the iniquity of us all. And so, Lord God, we plead with You. And I plead with You as a minister of the Gospel, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here who doesn't know You, if they're not sure what happens to them when they die, that they would stop running and stop trying to walk on the tops of the water by themselves and yet cry out to You, Lord, save me today. And that You would grant them repentance of sins and faith in Jesus. That they would turn from their life of sin and begin to walk after You and follow You and obey You and love You and serve You. Lord, that You would transform hearts and minds today. And God, we see this account. This isn't about Peter. It's not about us. It's about You exerting Yourself and displaying Your glory as the Sovereign Lord of all creation. We marvel at You, Lord, and we worship You rightly. You are our great God and Savior. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.